Well, today I get to speak with my favorite person on the planet. Just like spending time with her on stage, off stage, stage right, stage left, stage coach, doesn't really matter to me. I don't know why I said stage coach, but I did. That was a little weird, but yeah. that's okay. It was nice. Let's thought. welcome Corinne. Thank you. So this preacher in the United States a few years ago started traveling around giving this talk. It was entitled, How to Raise Your Children. Super successful. Okay, so he was traveling all over the Midwest. Uh, as many nights as he could do, he was booked. Large honorariums, which is the price that a church pays when a, when a speaker goes to speak at the church. How to Raise Your Children. People said it was powerful, profound, and inspiring. One thing you should know about this particular preacher is at the time that he was delivering this talk, How to Raise Your Children, he didn't have any. <laughs> so shortly after, um, a a after he'd been doing this talk for, for a little while, him and his wife had their first child. And, and he found it a little bit more difficult to be powerful, profound, and inspiring. And he actually felt a whole lot less confident about how to raise your children. So he changed the title of his talk to Some Suggestions for parents. <laughs> a little bit less powerful, profound, and inspiring, but he was still traveling around giving the talk, and during that time, his wife and him had two more children. Well, his life at that point consisted of dirty diapers, temper tantrums, and baby food flying across the kitchen, and he lost all his confidence, so he changed the title of his talk once again to Feeble Hints for Fellow Strugglers. <laughs> Guy said he seldom talks about parenting anymore doesn't have any confidence left. Also, he says he can't stand to hear his own voice at times. But when he does, he starts out his talk this way. He tells an old, a couple of old jokes and then looks out at the audience and says, does anybody have some words of wisdom? Um, so we're here today definitely not as experts, but we do have experience. And our prayer is that some of that experience would be a blessing to you today. Yeah, I just love that story so much because parenting is the only job in the world that the longer you do it, the less confident you feel, <laughs> right? We, we totally found that. Like, you never just feel like you've got the hang of the whole parenting thing. Like, our, our first child 26 years ago was, is she 27 now? Maybe 27 years ago was Tori. Let's see a picture of her. And she was an angel. Yes, doesn't she look angelic? She was such an easy kid, like she slept through the night early, and when I say slept through the night, I mean 14 hours through the night. She was just so easy. And then came along Lucas, and he was born with the maturity of a 40-year-old. That's his preschool graduation. So he was also really easy. So at that point, we were very confident. Like we thought we were great parents. Like this is so easy, I don't know what everyone's talking about. Then we had Emma. She was a holy terror. She was hangry for the first five years of her life. Perpetual low blood sugar, temper tantrums, nothing worked. Nothing that worked for the other two worked for her. Lost a lot of confidence. And then came Gabe, and he, uh, he learned to walk and immediately began stripping naked and escaping out the door every time I turned my back. Confidence even lower. And don't even get me started about when we adopted Beds and Samuel when they first came. Uh. From Haiti, yeah, there, was, there wasn't a shred of confidence on the parenting front, that's for sure. Because the thing with kids is that every one of them is different, 
And then just to complicate things further, the same kid at different stages is completely different also. Parenting is a hard job. I found this quote that is used to describe war, but I also thought it's perfect for parenting. Months of boredom punctuated by moments of terror. I just feel like that's just the perfect description of parenting. Okay, so you saw a bit of our credentials. We're gonna put up a family picture now, and you'll see the whole. This is our family almost two years ago at uh, Josh and Tori's wedding. That's our six kids, our new son-in-law, and of course it won't be complete without the newest addition to our family. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no. I love being in here with the doors locked. I'm just going to show Noah pictures That's for the rest of the story. Yeah. We're going day by day through <laughs> the life of Noah. That's uh. So as you saw, we have, we have six kids. All but one of them is an adult. We still have one teenager. And we have a lot of skin in the parenting game. Like Mike said, we're not experts, and we've made so many mistakes. Like we could do a sermon series on the mistakes that we made. I think you would find that less inspiring. But... We have made a lot of mistakes. So today what we want to do is give you some feeble hints for our fellow strugglers out there. It's funny because one way to look at parenting would be this way. It's high stakes, long-term, close proximity leadership. It's interesting, isn't it? High stakes, long-term, close proximity leadership. And I mention that because I'm not sure where you're at. But I want to tell you whether you're a parent or not. Maybe you're a volunteer with Southside Youth or Southside Kids. Maybe you're an aunt or an uncle or an older brother or an older sister. If you're in leadership in any capacity at all, the three principles that we are going to share with you today apply. They're important. So I'm going to give you the first one. The first one is this. Lead by example. Lead by example. So let me tell you something that you already know. Children are visual learners. You, you should probably actually write that down. Children are visual, in fact, scratch that. Scratch out children and write people. People are visual learners. Your example is the most powerful teaching tool you have, and I can't think of a close second. Ralph Waldo Emerson said it this way. He said, what you do speaks so loudly, I can't hear a word you say. It's interesting, isn't it? Every once in a while you'll hear a parent tell a joke, and it goes something like this. They look at their kids and they say, uh, do as I say, not as I do. It's a joke because it's so ridiculous. Do as I say, not as I do. And, and as I stand up here or as I sit up here today, I say to you, man, that's so ridiculous. But it's challenging, isn't it? Because when, when you're in the thick of leadership, when you're in the thick of parenting, so often, next thing you know, we find ourselves thinking that we could actually convince people to do as we say and not as we do. So I want to tell you, people are visual learners, and your example is by far your most, your most powerful teaching tool, and I can't think of a close second. Yeah, leading by example is so important. And the reason it's so important in parenting is because it's authentic leadership. And being authentic, being real, is so important in your parenting. No one can sniff out a phony like a kid can, especially a teenager. <laughs> Right? So don't even try to fool your kids. It won't work. You can't fool them. As Christian parents, I can tell you that when your kid hits their 20s, there's going to be one thing that matters to you more than anything. Do they love Jesus? Are they following him? In your child's relationship 
with Jesus will never be real if your relationship with Jesus isn't real. If you don't have a real and growing relationship, your kid isn't going to either. And here's a good way to tell if your relationship with Jesus is real and growing. Are you changing? Hmm. Notice I didn't say, do you come to church every Sunday? Although oh, Mike would do. like to say that that is also important. Sure. And yes, it is. <laughs> but there are people who haven't missed a Sunday in 30 years. You probably know some. And they're still total jerks. And their families are train wrecks. So I didn't ask if you came to church every Sunday. I asked if you're changing. Are you a different person this year than you were last year? Are you kinder? Are you more patient? Are you less angry? Leading by example, leading with authenticity means every day saying, change me, and use changed me to change this family. And when your kids see you changing, they're gonna know that Jesus is real. It's such an intimidating notion. I wanna encourage you. I think if you're praying that prayer, you're already on the right track. Yeah. Think of what a humble prayer that is. God, please change me. I got room to grow. Please change me. Show, show me where I need to grow. Please change me and use change me to inspire the people I lead to inspire my kids. I was thinking about Philippians 4.8. It says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Man, that's good. If you want your kids, if you want the people you lead to be positive, be positive. If you want your kids to be visionaries, in other words, people who don't look at the world and go, why? But look at the way that things could be and ask, why not? If you, if you want your kids, if you want the people you lead to be visionary, be visionary. Ask God to help you be visionary. If you want them to be solution-sided thinkers, you be a solution-sided thinker. And I know even as I say that, some of you might look at me and go, well, yeah, be positive. Okay, that's great, Mike, but there's really some things in my kids that needs to change. I believe you. Here's something that you already know, though. The environment that is most conducive to change is a positive environment. The environment that is most conducive to human change is a positive environment. You already know that. See, remember when you were back in middle school or high school? The classes that you did the best in were classes taught by teachers who you liked. And you might not have realized it at the time, but you liked them because you thought that they liked you. Um, I'll tell you a story that I don't think I've ever told here before. Back in my first year of Trinity Western University, so I graduated from high school in Red Deer, Alberta, went to two years of uh, Red Deer College, and then I transferred out to Trinity Western. When I arrived at Trinity Western, I was still a little bit rough around the edges. And within the first 10 days of being at Trinity, I met two interesting people. One was an English professor named Dr. Barbara Pell. I remember meeting her because uh, my academic advisor, when I signed up for my classes, said, uh, you'll be taking a class with Dr. Pell. I said, I'm a history major. I don't need an English class. He said, you can't go to the school and not take a class with Dr. Pell. She's brilliant. And so I was like, oh, man, history is more like, tell me what happened. <laughs> you know, literature is more imagination and stuff like that. So, but I took the class, you know. And from the first class, I was just like, this is amazing. She was so brilliant and just so interesting to listen to. And I, 
I remember how encouraging she was, and, and I wrote my first paper. I worked so hard, as hard as I think I've, you know, really ever worked on a paper. And I got it back, and I still remember what she wrote on it. She said, an excellent workmanlike effort, and I got an A minus. Loved her. Now, at the same time I met uh, an English prof named Dr. Pell, I met a librarian named Rick. Rick the librarian, okay? I did not like Rick the librarian as much as I liked Dr. Pell. We got off on the wrong foot. So I remember the first time I ever walked into the library, I walked in with a couple of friends and I was talking loudly and Rick the librarian stood in front of me and he said, uh, get out and don't come back today. That was my first introduction to Rick the librarian. Um, and, and, and I kept getting kicked out of the library. I would go in there and I would talk too loud or I would put my feet up on the table, which I found out wasn't allowed. And so eventually, I needed to go into the library. So what I would do is I would kind of sneak in the library and I would find a spot like in the far corner of the library, sit in a little cubicle so that I, you know, wouldn't get kicked out. And I knew I wasn't allowed to put my feet up on the table, uh, but, but I got long legs, you know, and so I eventually started sticking my knee up against the desk and I'd been kicked out about seven times by that point. And Rick the librarian found me in the back corner of the library. And, uh, and he leaned over and, and where I was sitting and he said, I'm starting to enjoy this. Get out. Okay, did I mention that I was a little rough around the edges when I arrived at Trinity Western? Okay, so here's what happened. What I did was I slowly gathered my books and, and put them into my book bag. And Rick the librarian was leaning over, right? He was le this important to the story. He was leaning over, uh, I'm going to enjoy this, get out. And uh, so I slowly put my books in my book bag, but then I very rapidly stood up. So rapidly, in fact, that my shoulder made contact with Rick the Librarian's chin. I think I just about knocked him out. So he went staggering backwards, and I walked out of the library. Now, I knew I was in trouble. But I didn't know until later what trouble that, or what form that trouble would take. So the next day, there was a meeting at Trinity Western University with all the department heads and Rick the Librarian. Rick the Librarian stood up and said, there's a student named Mike Manis. Student number 890650. And he needs to be kicked out of the library for what he's done for life. Now at that time, that would have been like being kicked out of school, actually. And not a single department head knew who I was. Oh, except for one, Dr. Powell. And she stood up and she said, uh, Rick, the librarian, I know Mike Manis. And I know that if you have trouble with Mike Manis, the trouble is actually yours. Actually, what she said, she was my academic advisor, that's how we found out about this. What she said was, Mike Manis is one of the most intelligent students I've had in a long time. If you have a problem with him, I think it's more a you problem than a him problem. And also, I want to add, this is a fill-in-the-blank time, so just use your imagination. Rick the librarian was known around campus as Rick the fill-in-the-blank. Okay, keep going. I, Not I, that that justifies I, his bad behavior. Bring that up. That uh, it's very bad. So, so here's the point. I would have done almost anything for Dr. Bell. I, I would have worked so hard to change the way I wrote, to change the way I studied, to change the way I thought for Dr. Pell. Rick the librarian had no interest. The environment most conducive to human change is a positive environment, but you already knew that. I have a, just a quick story about how I saw that play out. It's such a good reminder. The story has really stuck with me. It was one of Gabe's first soccer seasons, so I think he was about six. Can we see the, his soccer picture? <laughs> there he is. 
Yeah. So just remember that smile as I'm telling this story. So his coach that year was a guy who knew nothing about soccer. In fact, I'm sure that he knew nothing about any sport that you could possibly name. He knew nothing. But this guy was so positive. Like, Gabe was a soccer phenom at the time. So he'd go out for his shift, he'd score a couple goals, and he'd come in, and Mike and I were listening on the sidelines, and his coach would be like, wow, Gabe, you're incredible! <laughs> when he'd come up, and he was like that with all the kids, and Gabe beamed the entire season. All the kids were beaming. It was such a beautiful example of positivity, and it's just really stuck with me. Yeah. So principle number one, no matter what form of leadership you're in, um, please understand that your example is the most powerful teaching tool that you have. And I can't think of a close second. Principle number two, begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. Yeah, it gets so confusing, and parenting is so chaotic when you're right in the thick of it that it's hard to find any clarity, like, you know, am I doing it right, am I doing it wrong? And we almost always, as parents, feel like we're doing it wrong. Beginning with the end in mind is a way to bring some clarity to your day-to-day. -day. So just imagine what you want for your family when your kids are all grown. For us, and I think probably for every parent in here, everyone who's gonna be a future parent, lifelong friendship is the goal. Like, that they will want to come home again bring their spouses, bring their kids, that they'll all hang out together, that they'll like each other, that they'll encourage each other, that they'll do life together. And I remember a couple times we've had people ask us, like, what did you guys do? Your kids still like you, and they're, and they're adults. Like, how'd you make that happen? And I would just kind of shrug and laugh it off. But I think we need to be more thoughtful than that. And this beginning with the end in mind is, is the key, because that friendship starts now when they're little and bratty and annoying and not a lot of fun to be around. If you put in the time now with them, you're gonna reap the benefits later in life. I think some of you were probably hoping for a more practical parenting talk. I'm not really good at practical. I'm not great with checklists. And there's a reason I think that I, I don't like checklists very much, because I think that they can overemphasize techniques and underemphasize the principles that underlie those techniques. Like you've probably heard in parenting books, and there's nothing wrong with parenting books, read them, they're helpful, um, but you've probably all heard this belief, a successful family eats dinner together every night around the table. How many people have heard that? Some form of that over the years. Yes, we did too. Well, here's the problem. Mike and I rarely did that. Like he was a coach, started out our, our life as a coach, and he coached 12 months out of the year, and his practices were almost always over the dinner hour, then our kids got into sports and other activities, and someone was always doing something. And so supper time at our house often looked like me flinging pieces of toast at the kids and racing to the minivan. That's kind of what it looked like. But eating together around the table isn't the point. I remember once when uh, Beds and Samuel, they were five and seven when they came home from Haiti, and this was very soon after they came home and they were just learning English and we were having a rare meal together, the whole family around the table and Bedza looked around and he said, we're almost like a real flamly. That's so, so close. <laughs> almost. So close. Almost, Bedza. <laughs> I know unhappy families that ate supper together every night around the table. I grew up in one of those families. 
So the intentionality needs to be around these things. So if you're a checklist person, you can write a checklist here. Be intentional about the time that you spend with your kids and the conversations that you have with your kids and the fun that you have with them, not so much just the physical act of eating together around the table. And don't forget to be fun. I know that fun doesn't come easy for everyone, for different personalities, and I also know that the exhaustion of little kids and family life can kind of kick the fun out of you. Like I, I used to be fun. Like how many parents has had that thought, right? I used to be a fun person. So I'm just gonna give you, for people that are struggling to add fun into every day, I'm just gonna give you a few examples of how you might do that. I know the life with toddlers is a bit of a freak show, right? Tamper tantrums and it's just the days are long. The days are so long. Yes, the years are short, but the days are long, everybody, right? Like you're counting down the minutes until they close their sweet, beady little eyes and go to sleep. But there has to be a bedtime story, so why not just add some funny voices in when you're reading them a bedtime story? You're not gonna feel like it, you're gonna be tired, but it's not that hard to do. Or your school-age kids come home and the hours between, you know, after school and bedtime can be filled sometimes with a lot of conflict and the siblings are fighting and they don't want to do their homework and they don't want to clean their room and you're making supper and it's pancakes because you don't have time for anything else. Why not just make the pancakes in the, in the shape of a happy face and put it on a plate? You're not going to feel like it. The kids are probably not going to deserve fun at that point, but just do it anyways. Mm -hmm. And then there's teenagers, okay? So they're a different story. Funny voices and pancakes don't work with teenagers. All of you know that. So this is something that I have always done, and Mike reminded me that I still do it to this day. Um, I bribe them to spend time with me. Like, I'll say, I gotta go get groceries. If you come with me, I'll go through the drive-thru and get you anything you want. And then they'll take me up on it once in a while. And so this is what I try to do. When my teenager agrees to spend time with me, I try to listen more than I talk. Let them tell stories about their day, no matter how long they are, and they might be kind of shocking. Don't interrupt with a lecture. Save that for a more teachable moment. Just let them talk. Let them listen to their music. Just focus on having fun together when your teenager agrees to spend time with you. It's, it's a bit of a gift. A little bit of fun goes a long way in reaching that lifelong friendship goal, but it starts now, whatever stage of life you're, you're in. First service, Corinne, one of the examples of fun was putting purple food coloring into mashed potatoes. Oh, I forgot that one. And I found that gross. Fun, though. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Someone might find it fun. We live in a pretty fearful culture. I, I <laughs> Has anyone ever done that or heard of that? Is that just me? I don't see any hands, Corinne. Not a single no. hand. A lot of no's. <laughs> a lot a of, lot of what on earth are you talking about? How about green? That would be Someone okay, said, anyways. yeah, one person. Yeah, yeah green, okay, green. thank you. Oh, the pancakes. There we go. Shamrock. Right on. Yeah. Shamrock pancake. Oh, yeah, you could do it. Okay, anyways, <laughs> I digress. We digress. Okay, continue. So I think we live in a really fearful culture. And we talked a little bit about this last week, that there's a, a, a spirit of fear, you know, fear of not getting my sh fair share that leaves us wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting and isolated from each other. A, a fear of other people that leads to social anxiety or looking at people as commodities and what, you know, how can you validate me? How can you help me? And I also think there's a fear of missing out. 
which kind of leaves us unable to live in the now, to be fully present in the now. And what happens is when you become overloaded with anxiety, in a really fearful moment, or, or listen, or in a long-term anxious state, the part of your brain that does a cost-benefit analysis shuts down. And, and I want you to think about the ramifications of that to parenting. So suddenly, that thing that you're about to say, before you say it, if you want to begin with the end of mi- in, in mind, can you do a cost-benefit analysis, please? What's the benefit? You get it off your chest. What's the cost? That decision that you're about to make, can you do a cost-benefit analysis, please? What's the benefit and what's the cost? Beginning with the end in mind. It's called perspective. And I think for so many of us, one of the greatest prayers that we can pray as a leader, as a parent, is to take Jesus up on his promise of Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Come to him if you're weary or burdened or anxious. And ask him to find to, to provide you with, to give you rest for your soul. Slow down. Be present. How does the story end? Beginning with the end in mind. So principle number one, lead by example. Principle number two, uh, begin with the end in mind. And principle number three, stick together. Stick together. I think one of the sad things that I see when I look around the world today is this notion that it, that, that it becomes automatic that families are adversarial. <coughs> it, it's sort of like a punchline to a joke. It's sort of expected that, that we fight against each other. We got mom against dad, dad against mom. We got kids against parents. We got parents against kids. We got siblings against siblings. And I want to tell you something. I want to be really, really humble when I say this. That has never been our experience. We've, we've never been a family. Oh, everyone has their moments, right? but we've never been a family that fights against one another. We've always fought for each other. There's this poem out of the Jungle Book that I found years ago and it's become, I don't know, a little bit of a motto for our family at times. It goes like this. Now this is the law of the jungle. As old and as true as the sky. And the wolf that shall keep it may prosper, but the wolf that shall break it must die. As the creeper that girdles the tree trunk, the law runneth forward and back. For the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. That's been a truth for our family. And I just think, I, I, I guess I want to stand up here and I want to tell you that that whole notion that it, families need to be adversarial isn't true. That's never the way that it was meant to be. It's not the way that it has to be. You're for each other. There's this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says it this way. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn, the, warn those who are idle and disruptive and encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. We're fighting for one another, not against each other. And the reality is we're not naive. We know that discipline is a huge part of parenting. I guess I think that we need to change maybe the way that we think of when we think of discipline. 
And I, I think of it as course correction and protection. So correct and protect. So those are the things that discipline needs to focus on. I'm just gonna give you, like, course correction. I just wanna explain that one a little bit. Co course correction, like your kid is getting off track in their attitude, in their behavior or something, and you need to get them back on track gently and encourage them to get back on track and protecting them when things get tough. I wanna give you an example of how this played out um, in one of our kids' lives. Um, it was one of our sons in middle school and he was uh, just emotionally going through a, a rough time. That's middle school, right? <laughs> That's what happens in middle school. And he uh, started hanging out with this kid who was bad news. He was a behavior problem um, into to alcohol and drugs, and he was in trouble all the time. Um, just not a good influence on our kid. So we told our son that he can't hang out with this kid. So period on, on the end of that sentence. And about a week went by, and we got a phone call from a teacher at the school. We have spies everywhere. That's handy. So great. It's very handy. And he said, I just want you to know, because he knew this issue, I just want you to know that your son's hanging around with that kid again. So let me just interject here that there are times when you need to help your kids weather the storms, and then there are times when you need to change the whole climate for them. So for our son at this time, it was a change the whole climate. So we pulled him out of that school, and within two days, he was in a uniform, sitting, the, it's not that funny, sitting in a Christian school where he stayed for two years. So no, he was not very happy with us, and he didn't like us very much for a long time, but I'm confident that when he's an adult, and maybe it won't be till he has kids of his own, that he says, you know what, thank you for protecting me during that time when I was, when I was really, vulnerable. I just want to say also, so you see, but you see the heart of discipline. It's not, well, now you've done it. I'm so mad now. No, it's like, I'm fighting for you. And that, it doesn't always seem like it sometimes, but my heart for you is to fight for you. And if we need a climate change, we need a climate change. And this is where your relationship with Jesus comes in, your real and growing relationship. This is where that prayer changed me and use change me to change this family comes in. Because God actually answers that prayer when we pray it. When we are saying, help me be a better parent, God actually does help you. You're gonna get these gut feelings that there's something up with your kids at different stages of their life. And that gut feeling is the Holy Spirit. And he's leading you and guiding you and saying like, warning, warning. There's something up here because he can see what's going on in your kid's heart. We can't. We see an exterior that's sometimes completely opposite from what's going on, but God sees it. And we get to partner with God in raising his kids. Hmm. So he's waiting for you to invite him in and say, like, what do I do here? Help me. And he will because he has created your kids to become something in this world, and we get to partner with him in seeing our kids and helping mold our kids into the men and the women that God created them to be. There's lots of times that I remember that gut feeling that I just talked about. So many times when, you know, I got help this kid weather this storm, change the climate for this other kid. Uh, we had, we changed, we pulled a daughter out of Christian school and homeschooled her for a few years because she was being bullied 
We've changed kids from one school to another. Uh, another daughter was being sexually harassed at a school. She went to a different school. Friend situation. There was a time when we had five kids in four different schools, and none of them were in our catchment. So just imagine the before and after school commute to the four corners of the earth twice a day. That was a nightmare. But you know what? All of that hassle is worth it. When I look at them, they're not perfect, and we weren't perfect, and I missed it so many times. I didn't listen to my gut, or I did something different, and they made lots of mistakes, but I just believe they're going into their adult life and into their own families, carrying a lot less baggage than they might have if we hadn't listened to the Holy Spirit and interrupted some downward slides for them. So we got one more picture, and then we'll end with a prayer. And you can just leave this up while we're talking. So this, this picture is pretty important to Corinne and me. And so, let me just say again, this whole idea that family needs to be adversarial, it's a lie. It's not true. This picture was taken at Tori and Josh's wedding two Christmases ago. It was in the middle of an ice storm. It was an incredible day. I remember I officiated at the wedding, and as I'm as I'm officiating here, I look over at the groomsmen and, and I see two of the biggest, toughest, coolest dudes uh, standing there, Lucas Manis and Gabe Manis, and they're crying like babies. Big tears rolling down their cheeks. I think they'd been so busy with basketball and with school that maybe it was the first time that it hit them that our big sister is getting married, you know? And then the ceremony ended and Corinne and I were meeting, talking to people and, and Bedza and Samuel were ushering and our four oldest kids, Tori, Lucas, Emma, and Gabe, without us realizing it, were huddled in the back. Someone took a picture, and they told me that they were there crying for 10 minutes. And I asked them later, I said, you know what, what was going on there? And it was kind of their moment, now it's all your moment also, I guess, uh, now that I think about it, but a as much as I can tell, what it was, was it was uh, a moment where they just remembered that some things were coming to an end that they weren't kids anymore. So they looked back at the playing tag on the roof, 23-hour road trips to basketball tournaments in Las Vegas, and just those moments, but then also looking ahead and realizing that they were for each other, not just in that phase, but in the next phase, too, and it means a lot. I wish Beds and Samuel were in that picture, too, but it's difficult for me to put into words what this picture represents. I know a lot of you were here back in March when I spoke about the last decade and how difficult it had been in many ways for our family. And I remember saying in that talk, I am disappointed with myself. I am disappointed with my lack of accomplishments. But I have to tell you today that when I look at that picture, there's no master's degree, there's no published book, there's no accomplishment that I can think of that even comes close to what that picture represents. Like those six kids are my life's work and the fact that they love each other and that they're living out the truth of that poem that Mike read, that the strength of the wolf is the pack and the strength of the pack is the wolf. It makes me really proud and really, really thankful that no matter the mistakes that we made and there were many, God was faithful. One of the things that Corinne and I were talking about last night and again this morning is you kind of run the risk anytime you get up to do a talk like this of kind of coming across like a know-it-all or that 
oh man, this is so easy and, and uh, making people feel defeated. So let me be very clear. Man, we've made so many mistakes. Like Corinne said earlier, we could do a series on the mistakes that we've made. But here's one constant. We just prayed from the very beginning. God, where there's been gaps, please fill them. You know, where we, where we plant, planted bad seeds, please grant a crop failure. And God's been so faithful. And so as we've prayed, I, I kind of want to do that for you right now. So pray for you as a leader or as a parent. Why don't you stand up so I can do that. God, we're so thankful. For us as leaders and for those of us who are parents, that those kids, as much as we love them, that you love them even more, exponentially more than we could even imagine. So Father, I pray. I pray that we would lead by example. So I'm just asking humbly right now for every single person here, would you please change us little by little and you've changed us to inspire our kids, to inspire our family, to inspire those who we lead. Give us the ability to be visionaries, to look ahead at the, the life that we could lead and the difference that we could make. Father, I pray that you would help us to have perspective, to be people of perspective. That we, we, would, we would not forget the power of the present to shape the future. That we would never forget the power of the present to shape the future. And finally, God, I pray that, first of all, as, as, as our individual families, uh, in our marriages, in our families, and even as a church family, that we would defy the odds, that we would defy this notion that it has to be adversarial, but instead that we would, uh, even when we have our moments, and our struggles that we would always remember and that you would uh, give us the ability to just fight for each other. Be for each other. Because you're for us. And you're with us. May we love as we have been loved by you. In your name. Amen. Love you guys. God bless. Hey, thanks so much for watching today. Why don't you come join us at any of our four Sunday services? We meet at Sardis Secondary School in Chilliwack, British Columbia. And for more info, you can visit southsidelife.com.